generally what we found was unless there was really strong need, uh, people either didn't use the sensors or the extra sensors just sat there uninstalled or they would just return them to us uh, after a couple of months. Mm-hmm. And so we stopped doing the kind of free or freemium model um, because while people signed up initially, they didn't really last. And our product is entirely subscription-based. We don't sell hardware. We don't sell installation. So we only make money if a customer stays with us uh, long-term. And so it's very, very easy for someone to sign up and then churn after a month or two if they don't like it. Sure. And that's really, you know, uh, that's really important for us not to have happen because we're then you know, eating that cost. So we stopped the freemium uh, approach because we discovered it wasn't aligned with the ROI. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Dirt, the podcast where we dig into the inspiring stories of entrepreneurs and business owners who have overcome challenges to grow their businesses. In today's episode, we are joined by a man whose mission it is to combat climate change. His company aims to save clients money, reduce food waste, and lower CO2 emissions from refrigeration systems. I guess you can say he is trying to make cooling cool. His name, Monik Suri, his role, founder and CEO of Therma, and his value is to revolutionize the way we monitor and manage temperature-sensitive assets. So now, let's dive into Monik's story and learn more about his entrepreneurial journey. Welcome to the show, Monik. All right, Monik, let's dig right in. What was Good the, to be here. <laughs> what was the uh, inspiration behind founding Therma, and how did you identify the need for such a solution in the market. Yeah, I appreciate that, Jim. It's always personal, I think, when you start a company or get, you know, get going as a founder. Uh, I was interested in building technology that could reduce uh, waste and, and improve sustainability. Uh, the kind of, you know, the reason I got into tech, I left government and finance. That was the first part of my life. I worked in the White House and before that as an investor at a big hedge fund. I got inspired by one of my colleagues who said, you know, they're building a lot of tech uh, in the world. This is about a decade ago. She was writing a book called Wikigov. And the thesis was tech is being developed to make pizza delivery faster uh, and photo sharing easier and all these other cool widgets and apps. But big public problems like safety and sustainability weren't being tackled. So that got me excited and inspired, was looking for areas where I could get involved. And I was visiting my parents uh, who live in a small town in the Central Valley in California called Fresno, where I'd grown up. Um, and it's literally an ag town. You know, we've got a walnut groves behind my house and olives down the road and peaches around the block. Um, it's kind of a breadbasket. And we have a lot of family friends in food. And I realized I was talking to some of my family friends and folks I knew, the food supply chain kind of farm to fork. Um, everyone was using pen and paper. And one of my um, one, one of the people I grew up with said to me, you know, no one from Silicon Valley comes out to San Joaquin Valley. Uh, to mm. talk to us or sell us anything, and only an hour away. You know, it's not like it's very far away. It's just the other side of these these hills. But um, there's this huge disconnect between Silicon Valley and San Joaquin Valley, and uh, that got me thinking about the food industry and problems. Therma uh, was really an attempt, and is an attempt to help reduce waste and inefficiency around refrigeration. And refrigeration, it turns out, and cooling more broadly, is really important for the food industry, amongst other industries, because all these perishables need to be maintained continuously mm-hmm. from production to consumption. But most people were using pen and paper to manage and track this, this problem. And so Therma, the origins really were personal. I was visiting uh, family and friends where I grew up and was looking at safety and sustainability. And the idea came as a, as a way of automating 
uh, pen and paper task around temperature management. That's how we got into sensors and automation, and that took us into energy management, which I can talk more about. So, so are you guys typically re- you're pre- coming in and replacing pen and paper? Yeah, most of the time, uh, businesses that we're working with are using a manual log, a clipboard, uh, which is what they've been doing for 50 years. Uh, you've got staff and line workers checking stuff to make sure everything's in the right zone. We're mm-hmm. using sensors uh, that are drop in place and wireless and, and basically do it yourself that are about the size of half a deck of cards to automate that. So there's other there's other temperature monitoring systems out there, though. So what you know, what um, is it? Al- are you ever replacing other temp monitoring systems or is it is it you know just trying to get a basis for you know your entry point typically? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there are times when we replace existing uh, temperature monitoring solutions. There's two types that we replace. Uh, the generation one temperature monitoring uh, was wired sensors. Sorry, that's my dog, Espresso, who, who joins me in every video Welcome, uh, phone Espresso. call I have. Welcome. Uh, Espresso <laughs> wants to, to add her comments. But the, <laughs> the wired solutions were basically developed 20 years ago. What they do is they take a, you, you drill a line from the side of the fridge or the freezer, or and you actually run an Ethernet cable and run a sensor to that. So that can work, but um, the problem is that it's about five or ten thousand dollars for the wire up, uh, the drilling, the installation is super expensive. Yep. And so the only uh, businesses that typically have those kind of wired temp monitoring are are in the healthcare industry. The inventory value needs to be super high to justify that kind of spend. So hospitals. Uh, fertility clinics, blood banks have wired sensors in their mainline refrigeration. But your typical McDonald's, Starbucks, Pizza Hut, uh, Applebee's, the inventory value just isn't high enough. So, um, and also uh, wired can't be moved. So if these things are moving, uh, or if you want to kind of reconfigure your space, really hard to do that with a wired solution. The second temp monitoring that we replace is generation one wireless. Those are based, these are using Wi-Fi and Bluetooth to get signal uh, mm-hmm. you know, between uh, the sensor and the hub. The problem with Wi-Fi and Bluetooth is they don't work very well in the inside of a fridge or a freezer. Um, they're great for a home, say a Nest or a Ecobee or an Amazon Ring or a lot of other connected devices. Um, but the problem in fridges, freezers, and the back of house is there's a lot more uh, insulation. The steel and the aluminum and the siding typically blocks most signal from getting through. So generation one, sensors that use Wi-Fi and Bluetooth don't work very well. And we use radio. So our sensors use a new type of connectivity called long-range radio, uh, LoRa. And LoRa is being used now by almost 5% of IoT devices. It's the fastest growing connectivity layer. It's Mm. great for getting signal through dense insulation. Uh, And it also uses very little power. So the battery life on our sensors is five to seven years. Um, And that was really our technical advantage. We were able to show we could get really cheap, really reliable signal carry continuously. And that's how we've grown, you know, from a couple of sensors three years ago to over 15,000 uh, today. Wow. wow. And, and any certain markets or sectors that have been like hotspots for you guys? Yeah. So we, we primarily work in the food supply. Uh, as I mentioned, Jim, I grew up in an ag town and it kind of all comes full circle. So we yep. started working in, in food. Within the food supply, we're probably closer to the fork than the farm today. So we've got a little over a thousand customers. Most of our customers are down at the fork level. So restaurants, cafes and bars, schools, universities, and cafeterias, um, you know, amusement parks, casinos, hotels. So that's really where most of our customers are. You've got brands like operators of McDonald's, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, Marriott, Hilton, Wyndham, 7-Eleven. Those are customers. 
Do you see larger distributors or or larger retail um, folks being a, a target sector for you guys eventually once you've once you've gotten some additional market share in the existing market? It's kind of the goal. We're we're, we're seeing lots of opportunity in the world of refrigeration and cooling. There's about ninety yep. million fridges and freezers in the world. We're in about fifteen thousand of them today. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a massive, massive industry because refrigeration is everywhere. I think right outside of our, you know, our sweet spot, the next area would be convenience, grocery, supermarket, which have a lot of refrigeration per location. Um, but, you know, we haven't done a lot of work there yet. So you've got an interesting background, too, of not just technology, but also public policy. So um, how has that how has that background and and. Um, you know, legal background among it, right? How is that? How has that affected or um, um, been an impact on the mission and and the and the vision of Therma? Yeah, again, uh, appreciate the question. You know, it doesn't come up as much these days because I'm an entrepreneur. But yeah, uh, you know, I, I think at a personal level, you know, all of our lives are kind of you know we build on our experiences and and you know we understand our journey better than anybody else. I never thought I was going to be an entrepreneur. You know, I went to college. Uh, thinking I was going to go work in government. I studied political science and political theory, uh, you know, went to law school, um, you know, so so I always imagined I'd probably work closer to government and public policy. But I think um, I did a short stint uh, in government in 2011. I was an intern and then a fellow uh, at the White House doing economic policy of the first Obama administration. Amazing a group of people and lots of people who really wanted to make the world a better place. But the mm-hmm. challenges of government and policy uh, and the politics really um, got me very uh, frustrated and a little bit disillusioned. I think the challenges of getting good ideas turned into legislation, um, you know, I was there at the time in 2011 when, you know, the, the two parties couldn't agree on even raising the debt ceiling. This was mm-hmm. the first time the debt ceiling had been raised really like ever because it's kind of typically a bipartisan thing. Yeah. And it was kind of the beginning of the end of, uh, you know, of kind of uh, collaboration. And it was basically the, you know, the beginning of a decade of um, everyone fighting over every single thing and, and, and policy not getting passed easily. So I, I decided to leave government because I thought there was all these smart people who were sitting around waiting for the politics to work and thought maybe I could actually make an impact um, by actually working in the private sector and, and, and building, you know, solutions that had pro-social or positive social uh, implications. And that was around the time this colleague of mine, she was the deputy CTO. She was also a former lawyer, recovering attorney. Uh, she just wrote this book called WikiGov. So I heard her give a talk about the book. And a lot of my friends were working in tech at the time. I thought, wow, you know, not really that interested in making pizza delivery faster or photo sharing easier, though I love pizza and I love sharing my daughter's photos. But I am interested in building products that could make the world a little bit better. So that's how I got into tech. Um, coming full circle, you know, again, I think life has a way of, you know, it all makes sense in the rearview mirror. Um, we're doing a lot of work right now with, um, you know, government-based, um, you know, financing initiatives, government programs that allow us to subsidize our energy efficiency and energy optimization product. The uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, this kind of huge bill that was passed recently um, is a big uh, is a big tailwind creates a lot of incentive for businesses and, and residences to install solutions like Therma. Mm-hmm. And so having some of that experience on the public policy side and knowing a bunch of folks working on the legislation and regulation, I think makes it possible to think about, you know, where the overlap might be of the products we're building and, and ways to, to, to leverage, uh, you know, either 
grants or um, government initiatives or tax programs. Um, and, and certainly uh, that's powerful because for a business owner, you know, we sell to businesses, they're looking for ROI. And if we can mm-hmm. help make the ROI easier and, and better, um, you know, that's, that's a win for them. So, yeah, I think that's been a big, a big, uh, a big benefit recently of having that public policy background. The other thing I'll say, a lot of my friends, I, I live in California now, lived on the East Coast for almost 15 years. Um, there's this kind of artificial divide, I find, between my friends in tech and my friends in government. You know, people think that the, you know, uh, half of the folks in tech think the government's broken. And most of government folks I know think that, you know, tech techies just want to make money and, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, <laughs> go in and goof off on the weekends. But I actually think there's a lot of people trying to do similar things just with different toolkits. Um, and if you can figure yeah. out ways to kind of uh, connect those dots, uh, you know, one plus one can equal four. So I'm, you know, that's, that's an area where I spend time trying to get both sides to, to, to connect and better understand each other. So let's, let's go back a couple of years, um, as, as it relates to the combination of the two and, um, yeah. what, what we experienced from a pandemic perspective, I'm, I'm sure there was a heavy impact on the cold chain industry that you experienced at Therma from COVID-19, um, you know, how, what was that impact and, and how did, how did that change the landscape? How were you able to ad- adapt to the changing landscape? Yeah, it was, it was really, really, uh, challenging, Jim, as for so many people, I think, um, yeah. you know, COVID, COVID changed everything for, for many, many businesses. Um, uh, we had just launched Therma. So the idea for Therma came up in the back half of 19. Uh, we were watching users in the field, in restaurants and cafes in the Bay Area, we realized there was all this opportunity to replace pen and paper with sensors. We went through an accelerator in New York. It was an accelerator focused on hardware and climate run by BMW, the car manufacturer, in their mini uh, design factory where the Uh Mini Coopers are are designed. And we were just about to raise money in January of 20. We had a term sheet and we were out there talking about this new product. Um, In February of 20, we were comfortable. We had kind of got the term sheet really close to being finalized and thought, okay, we can, we can close this in the next few weeks. And then suddenly, um, you know, there was news about a cruise ship outside of, you know, in Japan that was kind of uh, stranded because of a strange disease. And mm-hmm. some of our potential investors started saying, well, let's just wait and see what happens. And then a few weeks later, it was in the U.S. and businesses were getting shut. And suddenly that term sheet went away the second week of March. And we had like a month of capital at that time because we were expecting to close this round. We had lined yeah. it up for several months. And so we were at one point down to about three weeks of runway. Um, and I was, um, you know, basically I wrote a letter, you know, to, to our team, uh, which I never sent. I, I drafted it and I had it all teed up, which was the kind of, you know, it's been a privilege letter, uh, you know, working with you all and, and thanks for, for, for the sacrifices you made. And I was sure the company was going to be shut down. I mean, I, I, I was, I was pretty close to, to throwing in the towel. Uh, my co-founder and I sat down, um, in the middle of March and, you know, said, do we really believe this Therma thing could work? And, uh, the early signs from customers was really encouraging between October of 19 and March of 20, the adoption and the interest was really strong. And so, uh, we said, look, we think the market really wants this and who, who knows what's going to happen in the world. But we think this is a good thing um, for, for society. It's a way of reducing waste and, and, and catching equipment issues. 
And so we talked to our investors and reset, recap the business. So we did a total recap and reset the cap table um, and got some of our existing investors to lead, um, you know, around. And and I invested in that round as well. Uh, and we did a restart in April. Um, basically, uh, lived to fight another day. Uh, the company at that time had, you know, not many employees. We had a couple of customers and a hundred sensors in the world, but we did really well. COVID turned out to be a big uh, opportunity for Therma because what owners and operators wanted was visibility into all their locations remotely. Lots of stores were being shut and lots of staffing was being turned up and down in 20 and 21. So people didn't know what was going on with their inventory and their equipment in real time. And because staffing was so much lighter, the number of hours uh, when, when locations were unmonitored or unstaffed got, you know, you know, grew. Um, and so they really wanted low cost, wireless, reliable monitoring. Um, mm. On top of that, there was all this concern about safety and, and you know, um, making sure that guest experience would be exceptional. And so um, I think the aha, the unlock for us happened in the summer of 20. Again, I was driving down to visit my parents um, from the, I live in San Francisco. They live in the Central Valley. And I remember seeing uh, on the way home, uh, you know, I think I stopped to get a burger and the line at Chick-fil-A was like down the road. Um, and the lines at Taco Bell and McDonald's were just out the block down the road. And the reason was because no one could go in store to dine. Yeah. So everyone was doing takeout and drive through. And so quick service restaurants were crushing it. They were doing really well. So I called up my sales leader and said, we got to sell to QSRs. Uh, fast food. That segment is doing really well because we couldn't figure out who to sell to. Everything was shut. And we ended up growing uh, 3X in 2020, almost entirely with uh, with, with QSRs, uh, fast food chains. And then wow. in 21, other businesses opened up. Um, and then in 22, schools and universities kind of came back and, and we started growing aggressively in education. But yeah, it was a very, very uncertain couple of years. Yeah, but it sounds like a, a couple pretty terrific years years since so what um like what do you um obviously some movements some pivots some some uh some focus initiatives that you've mentioned but you know the the obstacles you mentioned in both growth and raising capital for the company how how did you ultimately overcome them and any any big updates since then in terms of growth or or capital raise yeah, you know, I think capital raising is always um, is always uh, challenging. I don't think it's ever easy to raise money. I think the um, the timing. My wife jokes that I like to raise money at the worst possible times. Uh, we raised our seed round in March of 2020, as I mentioned, um, and then we raised our last round in the summer and fall of 22, when tech and and valuations were kind of coming down massively from from their highs in 21. But at the same time, I think um, getting product market fit and getting early indications that, hey, we can actually build this thing uh, and, and, and the market wants it. I think that's made it easier to raise money. Um, so, you know, we've raised a little over 30 million to date in the last few years. Um, and, you know, by Silicon Valley standards, that's not a lot of capital. But definitely, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the work the company and the team have done. And I think that the, you know, the investor base and the and the the VC community that we've been raising capital from venture capitalists, they're generally most excited when they can see ROI and, and growth, you know? So I think if they can see, hey, this product or this, you know, this solution actually creates value for the end user and customer, that's one, one thing we've been demonstrating since day one. Now, the other is, you know, we've been growing roughly 3X 
you know, 300% year over year. And mm-hmm. people like to see high growth. And I think that that's been one of the things I've been really focused on is can we keep sustaining a really high, um, you know, growth rate so we can actually uh, have impact at scale. And what have, what have some of the things that you've been um, focused on? Let's just take it the last 12 months or so as you've grown yet again, three, three X year over year. What are, what are some of the significant obstacles that you faced and that you've overcome as it relates to growth? Uh, well, I think that there's a few things. I mean, firstly, I would say, um, you know, the, the one thing I've, I've come to appreciate is, uh, you know, things keep changing. You know, once you think you've got something dialed in, almost certainly there's going to be some variable that comes from the outside, whether it's a market factor or these days people are talking about banking and, and financial sector challenges, you know, that might cause interest rates to continue rising or might cause lending to dry up. Uh, you know, at one point it was, you know, which businesses will be open this quarter when we were selling in 21 and 22, there was Delta and then Omicron. And so half the time we weren't sure which sector to sell to education or hospitality or restaurants, because no one really knew what was going to be open. So I think following the market and listening really closely, uh, to, to customers is something I've come to appreciate more and more. I'm not a product guy or, you know, I didn't come from product. I came more from a macro. You know, uh, you know, I worked in, in, as an investor doing private equity and then in economic policy. So this ability to kind of listen, not just to what people are saying, but what they're doing, I think is a really powerful way to drive growth. Um, mm-hmm. And I think our product org has done a great job of seeing where, uh, where the needs are and, and listening for what the product and the solution needs to have. So our latest, our latest uh, solution, which we added this year, came from the market, we added an energy optimization layer on top of our monitoring layer. That energy optimization idea came from one of our customers, which was actually turning refrigeration on and off when energy prices went up uh, in in late 21. And we discovered that, wow, you can actually tap a fridge or a freezer uh, or an air conditioner like a battery. You can actually tap it by turning it up and down based on the electricity price. So that idea turned into a whole new solution, which came from our customers. And that's driving a lot of growth this year. And um, in terms of some of the obstacles that that you faced on the way there, are there are there any certain stories that come to mind of things that have shaped the company's direction, obstacles you overcame? I mean, so many. <laughs> you know, how long do we have? I think the, the I give one example. The idea for Therma and the and the entire company was uh, was really a a giant uh, pivot, a learning from the company I was building previously. So between 2016 and 2019, uh, when I was still working on farm to fork, uh, safety and sustainability, uh, I was doing it with a different solution, a different a different approach. Uh, the first product I built was called Collaborative Inspect or Co-Inspect, and it was a mobile app. And the idea was to replace this pen and paper way of checking stuff with a, you know, a digital version, a mobile app that could sit on a tablet or a smart device. And, you know, between 2016 and 19, when we got started, Chipotle was dealing with a bunch of food safety and quality issues. They were in the news all the time and the market cap was down, um, you know, almost 42%. And so we thought, okay, if these big companies are struggling and a lot of people are still using pen and paper, there's got to be an opportunity for for digital tools. Turns out that a mobile app, uh, though it sounds good, is not the best way to solve the problem around temperature monitoring. 
Um, when people are checking this stuff four to eight times a day on a clipboard, replacing that with a, a digital clipboard is uh, only marginally better. They still have to check it four to eight times a day. And on top of that, now we're basically putting timestamps and geolocation uh, on that on that list. And so it's becoming harder for them. They actually like have to really be constrained in when and how they do the work. So it took us years to grow CoinSpec. We grew it to about 5,000 locations, but it was really, really painful. I think I must have gone to 40 states selling it, probably 500 sales meetings. Really, mm -hmm. really you know, a lot of friction. The thing I didn't appreciate, Jim, is no one ever told me in those three and a half years, we don't like your product or this is a bad idea. Everyone said, oh, this is great. We should deploy it. Yep, our brand or company should use this. But usage was low. You know, users often complained about the UX UI not being you know, simple and, and easy enough or, or requiring too much of them. And business buyers just didn't expand very fast. And so it wasn't what they said. It was what they did that mattered. And when we said, okay, maybe we can do this better. In 2019, we were trying to figure out how to improve the product. We realized, why don't we automate it with a sensor? Instead of using a mobile app, why don't we just replace the work with a sensor entirely? Maybe that would be better. When we put that product and MVP in the market, the adoption curve was like 10x, co-inspect. And again, it wasn't what people said to us. It was their behavior. It was the adoption we got. It turns out that a sensor and automation is just way better for the user. It means they don't have to do this. And it's way better for the owner. The owner gets accurate real-time data without having to constantly fight with their staff to kind of do work that they don't have time for or they're, they're busy doing other things. And that, that was painful. To, to realize because, you know, I had kind of started as a tech entrepreneur thinking, hey, you build product, you kind of know what the world needs. And if you build it, people will, will want to deploy it. Well, it turns out, um, you know, you have to really listen to user behavior, not just what people tell you, but what they do. And so the, that was three and a half years of my life uh, that went into to learning that. And that's what led to Therma, uh, you know, the idea for automation. So I say that because in terms of obstacles and, and roadblocks, you know, the single biggest thing, I think, uh, when I look back on the last several years, uh, was not listening closely enough to, to the user and, and the customer for what they really needed. Um, of course, there are a lot of other roadblocks, uh, you know, building the right team, having the right people around around the table, um, and then having capital. You know, as I mentioned, we almost ran out of money twice. But yeah. um when you, uh, as you were evolving the business and growing the business, how did how did your sales techniques or your sales motion shift as the company scaled? Yeah, a couple of things that are that are improving and shifting right now. So um, I think that we've changed the way in which we sell by expanding the number of channels and professionalizing how we sell. But when we started, uh, we really just kind of scrappy small team. And, and so it was a very kind of, I would say, uh, kind of traditional B2B, you know, cold outbound model. So we had a small team of sales development reps that were generating leads, scraping public databases, searching for names and contact info. And uh, they were cold calling, telling people about our product and our offering and, and trying to book demos. And those demos were done by Typically, our, our you know sales team, which was at one point me, and then eventually mm -hmm. we had a couple of account execs, um, and they were doing inside sales primarily. So uh, qualification demos of our product online on a webinar, um, and then you know we'd, we'd structure a, a pilot or a proof of concept. In some cases, go straight to a contract. But that's the 
kind of traditional model we took, which was cold outbound. Um, and that's still responsible for you know more than half our revenue. In 2021, we added in a new channel, which was uh, digital marketing. So we started using digital marketing uh, when we realized, wow, there's a ton of businesses in the world that have refrigeration. You know, there's literally tens of thousands of businesses out there. Um, what if we could market to them and 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 build an inbound kind of warm inbound pipeline? And so we started using SEO and SEM, you know, uh, content and ad buys to mm-hmm. drive traffic uh, and, and generate leads. And we ended up building a series of landing pages and, and campaigns online. And that allowed us to get a lot of uh, interest and, and, and convert a lot of customers uh, that we would never have known about and might never have uh, you know, gotten to know or, or, or reached out to. Um, and so digital marketing started leading to inbound. And we focused that. Um, you know, on, on small businesses, kind of 10 location or less owner operators. Um, but as a result, we picked up operators of, uh, you know, pet stores, funeral homes, um, hospitals, uh, you know, fertility clinics, uh, whole, you know, breweries. I think we've got 25 breweries at this point, uh, some wineries, hmm. just a whole bunch of verticals out there that have refrigeration that we would have never yeah. um, thought to go after because we were going after, you know, quick service restaurants, um, and so that's, you know, that's become our fastest growing channel, uh, which is kind of a marketing driven, you know, there's no humans involved. So there's no, uh, no salespeople. It's an entirely self-checkout using our e-commerce uh, engine. So you can go online, buy Therma, have it shipped to you directly without talking to anybody. And the third channel is partnerships. We just launched that uh, this year and happy to say we've signed two partnerships uh, to date. And that's really a distribution uh, channel. We're trying to look for ways to kind of scale Therma through third parties, you know, folks that either could resell or uh, bundle our product into their offerings. And we've signed, uh, you know, two contracts or two partnerships with facility maintenance uh, platforms uh, that have service technicians um, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, basically schedule truck rolls and, and, and do equipment repair and, and replace. So uh, that's the third and, and kind of youngest or newest channel we've got going today. Any, any things that you've tried along the way that didn't work? Many, many things we've tried that didn't work, but, um, you know, I think that's how you learn. I think it's iterative. We're, we're constantly trying new things. Um, we tried a kind of, um, you know, we tried a couple of, uh, marketing tactics like free, you know, you know, free sensors or, you know, buy two, get one free, you know, these kind of pricing gimmicks that give right. you a chance to test out market interest. Generally, what we found was unless there was really strong need, uh, people either didn't use the sensors or the extra sensors just sat there uninstalled or they would just return them to us uh, after a couple of months. Mm-hmm. And so we stopped doing the kind of free or freemium model um, because while people signed up initially, they didn't really last. And our product is entirely subscription based. We don't sell hardware. We don't sell installation. So we only make money if a customer stays with us uh, long term. And so it's very, very easy for someone to sign up and then churn after a month or two if they don't like it. Sure. And that's really, you know, uh, that's really important for us not to have happen because we're then you know, eating that cost. So we stopped the freemium uh, approach because we discovered it wasn't aligned with the ROI. Uh, we stopped selling internationally uh, in 20, oh. in late 21. We, we sold Therma in 2020 uh, and early 21 into 12 countries. Uh, and that was just me as an entrepreneur and a founder saying, hey, there's refrigeration everywhere. How come we're only selling into the U.S.? Uh, it turns out when you're a small company, you can't boil the ocean. You can't do everything. And so we almost, you know, we were just losing our shirt 
um, trying to fulfill orders in the UK and Mexico and, you know, Saudi Arabia and China and all these places where, you know, there's a lot of places where there's refrigeration and temperature gets hot, but, um, you know, small team based out of the Bay Area can't do everything. So that, that turned out to be a you know, bit of a disaster <laughs> when we were small, um, you know, things like that. So coming full circle now on all these opportunities, all the growth that you've experienced, how do you, how do you now measure the success of Therma, both in terms of uh, financial performance and social impact, since you seem like a big social impact guy as well? Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I think it's early. You know, we're we're kind of in year three, um, you know, coming into, you know, kind of a growth stage, a kind of, uh, you know, starting to grow more, more ambitiously. So it's hard to say how we'll do long term. I think I'm I'm very excited about the potential uh, because both the problem we're working on and the need are growing rapidly. The problem we're working on is growing rapidly because there's a ton of cooling in the world and cooling is actually a growth sector. So there's already 90 million pieces of refrigeration and the sector is growing at over 10%. A year uh, globally, because a lot of the world doesn't have refrigeration today. Right. So Latin America, Africa, parts of Asia don't have that much refrigeration per capita, which means a lot of new refrigeration is coming online. And most of it's unmonitored and, and not optimized. It still run the same way it was in 1950. Um, you plug it in the wall, you set it, and you hope it doesn't break or fill. And that means um, the inefficiency and the waste around the energy consumption and the food spoilage is causing emissions. You know, it's causing it's causing global warming. And ironically, the warmer the planet gets, the more cooling we need. And so um, I think that the problem area is getting bigger and our, our solution is getting more mature. You know, and now we're we're in over, you know, a thousand customers um, and we're just getting started. We've got, you know, a really great team. You know, we're about 60 people, 65 people. And, and I think that the team is a combination of product, engineering, data science, uh, installation, implementation, you know, experts. So we've got a a much much more robust team than we did a few years ago when we were just a you know a small handful of people but um startups are hard you know starting yeah. businesses is hard so you know every every you know i still wake up wondering if we're going to run out of money wondering if we have the right you know marketing one pager you know wondering if my wife's going to kill me if i miss if i miss a you know a dinner for for some last minute you know disaster that has to be dealt with those kinds of things come up all the time how do you manage that well, the coffee helps. Um, uh, having a dog helps. Uh, I have a two-year-old, which is the best, you know, part of my life. Uh, I think the um, the kind of uh, you know balance of of kind of keeping it in perspective uh, has been has been really valuable. I've been with my partner. Um, my wife and I met uh, freshman year of college, uh, twenty-two years ago. Wow. So we've been together for for twenty-two years. We got married, um, you know, ten years ago, but we've been together since we were eighteen. Um, and so she's my best friend and that helps. She's known me since the beginning. Um, and so, you know, I try not to take it too seriously. She doesn't take any of it very seriously. Uh, and so I think it's, it's also humbling to remember, uh, that these things are not entirely about you. Um, you know, I think the work we're doing is trying to reduce warming and trying to reduce waste and help businesses. So I feel good about, you know, trying and putting one foot in front of the next to make the world a little better. But, um, you know, sometimes I got to remind myself that it's, it's, you know, it's, there are high, there are factors at play and there are forces at work that you can't control like COVID uh, or, or, you know, like the world of, of finance, but uh, yeah, still having fun. 
Good. You mentioned um, reducing food waste, uh, energy consumption, environment, environmental sustainability. How, how, do, how does Therma contribute to these things and any, anything, uh, any notable uh, metrics, if you will, or KPIs worth talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Therma does two things. We catch um, cooling equipment uh, failures early and often. So we provide like an alarm uh, and and uh, predictive insights that help businesses catch downtime. Uh, what mm. that can do is it can reduce spoilage and loss. And that's one of the reasons why customers have been adopting it so quickly. It's a way of catching spoilage and loss that would happen particularly on nights and weekends. And that can add up to tens of thousands of dollars a year of inventory. And that inventory is right at the end of the, you know, the, the, the supply chain. It's right before people eat it. So all the carbon, all the energy that's gone into growing it, getting it to that last mile is, is already built in. And so food waste at that point um, is pretty, it's pretty carbon intensive. Um, and uh, food waste, if it were a country, would be the, the third largest emitter. You know, a third of all food that's grown is thrown wow. out, which is just a crazy number. Um, and so we're measuring that. We're measuring the spoilage and loss prevention. The second thing we do is um, we catch equipment issues, you know, and, and and try and reduce downtime because of the temp and humidity data providing insights about the equipment. Refrigerants are these chemicals that go into the cooling effect. They're what actually make cooling possible. Ironically, refrigerants themselves are ultra warming. They cause between a thousand and eleven thousand times more warming than CO two. So they're ultra warming. Hmm. Uh, compounds and refrigerants get leaked throughout the life cycle of refrigeration and air conditioning. Now, because refrigerants aren't that expensive, businesses don't generally, you know, pay much mind uh, to refrigerant leaks. But when refrigerants leak and 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 and, and empty out, the refrigeration stops working. So that actually does matter because no one wants to have their equipment go down. We're able to catch some of those refrigerant leaks not because we measure measure the refrigerant but because we see the equipment not holding temp correctly. And so by catching the equipment failure, that can trigger a repair cycle and, 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 and help refill the refrigerants and stem the leak. Um, and that, that's actually a way of kind of stemming some of the warming that these refrigerants would cause in, in the background. The third and probably most powerful climate, um, you know, kind of impact we have is we actually reduce how much electricity uh, these assets use. We turn them up and down and turn them off uh, based on time of day, based on utilization, and based on the grid need. So there's an intelligence layer that basically taps these things like batteries. Simple example, um, we're in over a 1,000 schools, K through 12, across the U.S. Uh, well, schools, uh, as one of my colleagues reminded me uh, you know, a little over a year ago, schools are closed <laughs> several months of the year because of mm -hmm. holidays. Uh, people don't generally turn their refrigeration off in the off months. Um, today. And we're helping to kind of lower utilization when, say, no one's there. Um, that can reduce the total electricity footprint. And, and cooling uses a lot of electricity, which is a big source, of course, of, of, of warming uh, energy consumption. So those are the three things we do. We have a CO2 equivalent um, calculator, and we actually put that in our dashboard. So customers can see how much um, you know, CO2E they're mitigating or preventing by using cooling intelligence, uh, we don't we don't generally sell the product as a sustainability tool alone. We sell right. it as a way of saving money and improving your bottom line and improving your guest experience. That also happens to be great for the planet. Yeah, awesome. Any um, any aggregate numbers of you know 
reduced waste or energy consumption that that you can talk about or that you use as kind of like a use case any any particular customer that you've uh, gotten incredible metrics from around reducing waste and energy consumption? Yeah, no, just kind of simple metrics. We're, we're on the food waste side. You know, we've been able to, we use a third party firm that kind of validates social impact. We, we measure around one metric ton of CO2E uh, emissions prevented per location per year on the restaurant side. And that's food waste on the energy consumption per location, side, per location, per location, per location. Yeah. Well, um, the and we use an EPA tool called the Warm Calculator, which converts food waste into into CO two e. So um, you know it's it's a kind of federal you know uh, calculator. It's a it's a you know a standard way of t- turning any of these impact metrics. The uh, the energy consumption side is actually much easier to measure because it's actually electrons that you know that either aren't used or are used at a cheaper and cleaner. Uh, time of use than you know peak load, um, and so there, uh, what we're seeing is across, you know, today again using just restaurants as an example, um, every thousand locations, uh, you know, and again, uh, you know, every location just use a simple metric gym can represent around uh, thirty to fifty um, kilowatt hours, uh, and so let's use fifty for example, uh, two hundred locations becomes a megawatt uh and 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 that starts to look kind of you know important when you're talking about 10 megawatt 50 megawatt 100 megawatt virtual power plants so hmm. we start thinking of this as replacing a peaker plant when we're in you know 5000 2000 to 5000 locations um that's a peaker plant a peaker plant uh being one of these uh you know quote um dirty uh, but necessary power plants that use diesel coal or um, natural gas uh, in, in the background to fire up. Um, and so, you know, we think of ourselves as kind of helping to replace peaker uh, and, and reduce the need for, for new peakers uh, to go online, which hmm. is quite a bit of data out there on what a peaker plant does to the, to the environment in terms of CO2E, but they're the, essentially they're kind of the dirtiest, most emittive sources of power in the, in the world. Uh, but they're necessary because the grids run out of electricity, uh, you know, so virtual power, what we're trying to do by turning things off, reduces the need for peakers. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Um, ready to close us off with our founder five today. So five quick hit, quick hit questions about your growth and your company's growth. First one is uh, number one metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on. Yeah, as a kind of uh, a sales-driven founder and, and someone who's always looking at the footprint of the company, I guess, you know, the annual recurring revenue is probably the number that, that I stare at every day, which is our, our, our run rate revenue for the business. It's certainly what your investors probably want to hear. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, we're pretty we're pretty uh, transparent about it. We report it every month. But yeah, it's definitely a dashboard I keep I keep front and center. All right. A top tip for growth stage founders like yourself. You know, um, surround yourself with people that are better than you and that inspire you, like in all ways. You know, it's it's great to be the least smart person in the room, and it's great to be the least, you know, experienced person in in whatever area you're trying to grow in. So, just the quality of the people around you might be the single most important thing. Awesome. All right, favorite book or podcast that's helped you to grow? I really liked uh, John Steinbeck's 
East of Eden as a kid. It's one of my favorite books of all time. It has nothing to do with being an entrepreneur, but it has everything to do with taking ownership for your life. Yeah. Um, and the, the book ends with this quote or this phrase, uh, you know, Tim shall thou mayest, not thou shalt, but thou mayest, which, you know, when I always reflect on that, that, you know, there's these questions about fate and destiny. Um, and I think what I love is that in the, in the, in the space between, you know, fate and, and destiny, we do have some agency. I really believe it. I really think we do have some ability to shape our, our future. Um, and as a founder and entrepreneur, I think you're always, you know, you can always come back to that idea that you do have some ability to shape your future, whether you're about to run out of money, which has happened to me a couple of times, or whether you're, you know, coming off a high of a fundraise or a big win with a customer, yeah. um, just keeping that conviction that, Hey, it's still, you do have, you do have some agency. You do have some, some, some ownership. Just, just take the reins, take the reins. A good one. That's a good one. All right. Uh, piece of advice that counters traditional wisdom. Uh, don't raise capital uh, until you're really sure that what you're building has sustainable product market fit. I think raising capital sounds really compelling. And of course, there's lots of news and lots of press that comes with raising money. But um, raising money is really a tool, not an mm -hmm. end. It's just a way to scale uh, impact and to, to kind of do things faster um, or, or, you know, with more, with more, um, robustness, but mm -hmm. if you're, if the fundamental thing you're, you're building, if you're not sure it has product market fit, if you're not sure it's something that the market really, really, really needs and wants, you can end up spending a lot of time and, and, and energy and money chasing something that ultimately may not, you know, be the right direction. And the problem with capital is it just becomes an accelerator. So if you're, it's kind of like if you're driving and you're not sure if the of, if you're in the right you know <laughs> part of town yep. or if you're on the right road, if you start stepping on the accelerator, that's not necessarily going to help you get to your destination. That might take you further from where you're trying to go. And you know, I certainly did that once when I raised money before I knew we had product market fit with Coinspect, and ended up consuming more time and, and years of my life, and took longer to unwind. Plus, it you know you're burning up capital, and and and, and that's hard too. Right. Right. All right. What is uh, going to be the title of your autobiography when you have achieved all you set out to achieve? You know, the arena, the arena or something to that effect. I really like the Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, the man in the arena. Yeah. I don't know if you heard the quote, um, but, uh, you know, it's not the critic that counts, not the man who pointed out where the strong man stumbled or the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood. Who strives valiantly and errors and comes up short again and again. Uh, that's good. That's you know, good. I like that a lot. Awesome. That's that's kind of I think being being in the game, just hustling, just trying to make an impact. Yeah. Yeah. Just being in the arena. Um, all right. You've given so much to our listeners today. Uh time for a little bit of self promotion. How can those listening help you out? Appreciate that, Jim. We're always looking for partners. Uh, we're always looking for for promoters and talent. If you're interested in what we're building at Therma, please reach out to me. It's Monik, M-A-N-I-K, at hellotherma.com. Monik at hellotherma.com. We're on social, uh, hellotherma.com on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, we're hiring. We're, we're looking for customers. We're looking for partners. So definitely uh, you know, check out our work. 
uh, in the cooling space. Uh, I joke, I'm trying to make cooling cool. Um, and thanks for listening in. Thanks for having me, Jim. Yeah, Monik, thank you so much. Thanks for joining. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening in. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.